Hi, Grace. Hi, Adam. What are we doing here? Well, this is a very exciting episode that I thought we should just introduce a little bit. Because do you remember when we did our Unforgotten episodes? Yeah, they were great. Well, someone else thought they were great and they thought they were so great they emailed us. And that was Andy Wilson, director of Unforgotten. Stop it. Yeah, no, he emailed us and he gave us a few notes for things that we kind of missed. But he did agree to do an interview with us. That's right. Yeah, he did. We we had such a good chat about his career, about Unforgotten. It was absolutely fascinating. And I think he found our email from The Guardian, which we suspect maybe was in the comments section somewhere. Yeah, we've still not been able to uncover where that, where that comment was on The Guardian website, but we'll keep looking for it. If it was you who posted on The Guardian about TV DNA, please do drop us a line to let us know, tvdnapod at gmail.com. So in Andy's email, before we get to the interview, he talked a bit about uh, some of the things we'd missed on Unforgotten. So we're going to read that at the end of the interview. It's a bit spoilery. This interview is entirely non-spoilery, but if you want to hear the spoilery bit at the end, um, Andy's thoughts on the bits that we missed, we'll read that out at the end. Anyway, here's the interview. Okay. Got it. Hello and welcome to TV DNA. My name is Adam Hemming and I'm here with Grace Chapman. Hello. And we are thrilled to have been joined by the director of Unforgotten, Mr. Andy Wilson. Hello. Hello from Denmark. <laughs> Amazing. Andy, we're so delighted to have you here and it was really kind of you to email us after listening to the podcasts. Before we get into Unforgotten, can I ask, do you watch much TV? I watch an inordinate amount of TV. <laughs> I have every... I live in Denmark and I, I'm not particularly good Danish speaker and I love my television. I love drama on television. I always have. It's this thing I've always done and always wanted to do so I've got every streaming service possible known to humankind here and uh, I particularly like crime drama and I particularly like thrillers and so I, I'm, I'm on HBO Max a lot and fire play and all. I try and keep up with everything it's um I mean it's important as well you know when you make shows you've got to keep up with the with the zeitgeist and see what people are doing and it's yeah so yeah I watch too much <laughs> but luckily my wife loves it too so you know we cozy up it gets quite cold here you can get a lot of telly in in the evening well you're talking to people who don't think there's a thing as too much telly all right so. no well me neither i never so have safe. yeah yeah i never have i've always 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 loved it i think it's it's the great art form of the 21st century not film as we're seeing happen and I've always loved the long form storytelling you know even when it was movies I loved long movies I like you know Lawrence of Arabia and Dr Vargo is there anything that you're watching at the moment that you're particularly enjoying your honor the yeah. uh, Brian Cranston thing I love that it's it, I mean the second series got off to a bit of a shaky start but once you settled into it, it really, really mined the fallout of the first series, which I thought was really cool. And it's just finished, you know, and I, I won't spoil it, but the, the ending was very good. But it managed to keep a sort of low-key, unactiony vibe in the second series, which eventually I really enjoyed. I thought it was really, really good. And of course, Brian Cranston's just stunning. You know, he's just one of the best TV actors there is. I've never seen him in a film where he did it. 
but he somehow is a TV star. And that's that's a very interesting thing. Some actors are television stars and they, they hold the small screen. And some actors, and there's a big difference, you know, film actors, they have to hold a big screen. And I think there's a different, there's a whole different life you have to have in order to do that. You know, it's not so much about acting, really. It's about your presence and your personality and more about your personality that the audience knows about off screen. So yeah, Brian's one of the great TV actors. And I've worked with some great TV actors, but not, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I've worked with some good film stars, but they're different. They're really different. They're different people, different types of people. Really enjoyed your honor. Yeah, that first season was just kind of so perfect in a Brilliant. way. That's yeah. a one, one season yeah. thing. Curious to see how they were going to take it on in a second season. I think they did a, a really good job. With it, it was very different, wasn't it? Had had the same DNA, but it was it was a very different beast. It was it was much uh, more of a chamber piece and yeah. about how the various characters had to confront that event, the past, you know, and what they did. So it was terribly well worked out. Really enjoyed that. I loved The Last of Us as well. I'm not, I almost didn't watch it uh, (laughs) because I thought, I'm not a horror fan. I never go to see horror and I never really have liked horror. I'm very squeamish about gore. I don't do gore in Unforgotten or many of the things that I've done. I I will always avoid it if I can. And I thought, oh, zombies, no. And I'm not good at zombies. But then I watched it and I thought, oh my God, this is so good. And then particularly there was episode three, the one with, that took a complete digression into the lives of the two gay guys and their wonderful relationship. And it was the man from White Lotus <laughs> and, uh, and the man from, you know, that wonderful Alex Garland thing who played yeah. the, uh, the the California sort of tech billionaire. And they were so great. And it was just such a beautiful piece of telly. And it was like t- two lives in 45 minutes. It was just fantastic. What else can I say? There's a fantastic show on here in that has been in Denmark called Dance Garter, which means dance changing room that um, my wife worked on as an art director. And that's a, a set in the 1970s. And it's just beautiful. It's about women suffering misogyny every single minute of their day. <laughs> and it's been made to look like uh, it's set in a, a weird dance show that they have, a dance comedy show in a sort of uh, fun fair that was very famous in the 70s and 80s. And it's fantastic. That's fantastic. So we watched that because she worked on it and I loved it. That sounds right up my street. Yeah, you'd love it. I mean, I don't see how you couldn't love it. It, was that, it is terrific. What else have I enjoyed? I'm watching Liaison at the moment with the fabulous Eva Green. It's, it's okay. The fabulous Eva Green is fabulous. And and um, Matthew Kasovitz is fabulous, but it doesn't quite get there yet. It might do. Do you I have an all-time favourite TV show? An all-time favourite TV show? I I do, as a matter of fact. And it is, as a matter of fact very highly intertwined with my own personal history. It was The X-Files. Nice. I adored The X-Files. I watched it, watched it, watched it, watched it. It was a, it was appointment viewing when I was 25 or 6 or maybe a bit, no, a bit older. I was probably 30. Watched all the seasons. And then one day got a telephone call from David Duchovny via my agent who had enjoyed Cracker that I had um, made with Robbie Coltrane. 
and uh, which was also one of my favorite TV shows. But I can't say that because I made one of the original series. He said, oh, I love your cracker, David's voice. And uh, I said, he said, I, I would like to send you a, a movie script. And, you know, I'd, I'd won an award in America for directing best television movie and uh, got an agent. So he sent me this script and I, I thought it was rather good. And I loved David Duchovny because I loved the X-Files. So I agreed to go to Hollywood and direct it. Big mistake. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> big mistake because as soon as I got there the the producer I, I you know flew out and and had had committed and signed the contract and everything it was a great little script by an English guy called Mark Haskell Smith who subsequently wrote Anaconda right. which was a massive hit and he's done some other things but this was his first produced screenplay and as soon as I got there the producer who's a bloke called Mark Abrams said um well, yeah, we're going to change the script. And I said, oh, really? I, I thought it was rather good. And then this Hollywood um, thing of rewriting the script and five writers. And even when I was shooting it, there was the, the producer would come on set. It's called Playing God, this film, with Angelina Jolie and Tim Hutton and Peter Stormare. It was a great cast and David Duchovny. Anyway, the, there were days on set where the producer would introduce a new writer. He would say, oh, I'm your new writer. And I'd go, well, what's your name? He'd say, Keith or something. And I'd go, well, what are you going to do, Keith? And I said, well, I'm going to write a new scene for you. And I'd go, okay, right. And I just, you know, it went on like that. So it was an absolute mangle at the end. Some bits of it are great. And I had a very, very negative experience with Hollywood and came back and re-entered my TV career in England, which then went great guns for a number of years after that. I, I ended up doing Gormenghast, which was uh, my pet project. And, you know, then I did Spooks and then I did um, loads of Miss Marples and Poirots and carried on. I never stopped working. That thing about writers, that's very interesting. Am I going on too much? No, not at all. It's it's, really, it's really all really fascinating. I mean, I just wanted to quickly say that I um, Cracker is such a phenomenal show. And I also yeah. well, really love Well, here's the thing. Um you know, in British television, we've got some of the absolutely best writers working who are alive, you know, without exception. Even some of the Poirots that I did, you know, people like Guy Andrews and Kevin Elliott writing them. Kevin Elliott wrote my um, version of Death on the Nile. He, he's one of the, the great writers, dead now, sadly, but he, he wrote the beautiful, you know, My Night with Reg. And it, it, which I'd seen in the theatre. These people were working for television and Cracker working with Jimmy McGovern, you know, my mm. first brush, really. I hadn't really done much before Cracker. I'd done a couple of BBC shows, but my first brush with a great writer, you know, and I ended up in a pub in Manchester with this man who'd written this phenomenal script, Cracker, and I had a three-part episode to do called to say i love you which had susan lynch in it it was far too long it was like 190 pages and it had to be sort of you know 100 three-parter and we sat down and jimmy the great jimmy he said okay let's look through it and i'd go well we you know is this scene any good jimmy and he'd go no you're right not here i'll use it in another episode <laughs> and uh, you know so eventually we had this beautiful lean thriller they call it the sort of bonnie and clyde episode it was two teenage killers yeah he did, he was extraordinary and he knew exactly 
what each scene was and what it did and what its function was and how it and I learned I sucked it up the cut of Cracker those three episodes was what he wrote and I sort of realized okay it's the script the script the script dummy it has to work it has to be beautifully written and you know this was all jettisoned in Hollywood of course because that's a different system but then you know I've worked with these fabulous writers and now I've come to Chris Chris Lang, who writes Unforgotten, and I, I suddenly have, in, in later life, discovered a writer whose work I just can see. You know, he writes it. I know how to make it. I know yeah. how to cast it. I know how to shoot it. It's just a completely symbiotic thing. You know, I read these scripts. Obviously, we talk about them and we edit. But we shoot and put on screen exactly what's written. No, exactly what's written. You hardly ever cut anything. You hardly ever... In the first season, we reordered a bit to try and find the shape. But it's all about the writing. And it, and this is, you know, working in British television is the place to be. I mean, we've got, you know, Russell T and, and just the most phenomenal writers. Sally, Wainwright, you know, you, you can't take it away from British television. It, it has got the best writers in it. And it, yeah. I don't see it anywhere else. Starting to see long-form, brilliant writing in American television with Mike, you know, with the White Lotus stuff and various other things. I mean, we have this fabulous tradition as well in, in our country of the pop show, you know, going back to Zed Cars and what I grew up with, Softly, Softly. And we've also got the social realist writing. We've got the Willie Russell. We've got the, you know, we've got the two things blended via Jimmy McGovern, which I think was the first crossover cracker where social realism and cop show suddenly worked and that's where we're at now and we have we have a, a great tradition of also the sort of theatrical detective stuff which I also love of Marple Poirot and Morse and I've done a couple of endeavors I love doing those they were brilliant and they're also yeah. written by great writers so it's 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 just been a wonderful journey really too unforgotten now, now I, I, I sort of wonder what on earth will be any better, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I, 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 I have to say, I don't think there's anything that quite beats a British crime drama. No, uh, no, that's true. And uh, that's true. I have to say, I've got Andy. I've got such strong memories of Cracker growing up because oh, my mum loved it, and yeah. she put us to bed early yeah. when Cracker was coming on, so she could pour herself a large red and yeah. settle in. And I have yeah. such strong memories of Weekly. Not really understanding why, but she was like, get to bed now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was a phenomenon. And mm. It was extraordinary because we didn't really... While we were making it, actually shooting it, I was sending rushes. Obviously, they went to the ITV bosses. And we got a terrible panic at one point where I just shot... There's a scene in, in Say I Love You where, where the boy smashes a a moneylender over the back of the head with a, a rock. And then the, him and his female accomplice run off down the alleyway and they have sex just after he's murdered someone. And to Jimmy, it was really important. He was making a point, which Fitz then uh, elaborated on like, in a later scene, about sex and death being very, you know, linked as, as psychological constructs. And he wanted that scene to remain intact. And the ITV bosses just were, 
what are you doing? You know, this is so dark. You can't do this. And we had a letter from the then head of drama at ITV. We said, we, we fear this is too, this is quoting, that we fear this is too dark and elliptical for the, the ITV audience. And luckily we had a very, very um, strong producer called Gubner and a very strong executive called Sally Head, who ran Granada at that time, Prime Suspect and all that. And they said, forget it. Just keep going. It's brilliant. You know, we love it. Just do what you're doing. We'll face this later on. So we carried on. And, and of course, you know, when it came to actually editing that scene, the ITV bosses wanted me to cut bits. And it turned into an absolute bun fight. And eventually I had to, I had to change the sound effect <laughs> of the rock hitting the moneylender's head so that I could keep in you know the actual violence and the and the aftermath but it was dramatically absolutely bang on you know we were we were just post Falklands war and there's a little line there saying where Fitz says nothing gets women horny like like death you know did you see all those wives waving at the soldiers as they were and this was it was you know that wasn't his point but it was the dramatic point of doing it and to actually say, well, why did they have sex here? Because, you know, they were empowered by this act. And that psychologically was part of the crime story. And I thought, I thought, you know, great. But uh, yeah, we had to fight for that. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking earlier about script, 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 and how yeah. you Chris's work and it just, you can see it in your head. Yeah. We were just interested to know, it sounds like you come into the unforgotten process quite early on. Yeah. How closely do you work with script? He sends me them one by one, mm-hmm. as though as though I were an audience, or two by one, and then another one later. And what I try to do, because he also has uh, our other executives and the ITV executives criticizing line by line, and you know, getting really into it. And there's a script editor and all that. So by the time I I don't want to read it before Chris thinks it's okay for me to read. So. Then he sends it to me, and I I just try to do broad sweep. So, as a for example, in the season with Neil Morrissey in it, which had Kevin McNally, Neil Morrissey, and it was a, a character who was a, a blogger, a crime blogger, and it was a good character. And she had a, a little function in the um, plot. She blogged about the Neil Morrissey character, and somebody killed him, and that was fascinating. But in the original scripts, there was vast swathes of story about this character. And you got her background. She went to a, a newspaper and couldn't get a job and decided to sort of be a blogger and so on. And I just sort of, I, when I read it, I just, this is how it works. I just said, well, I don't, I don't need that. I didn't say change that line, change this line. You know, it's like broad sweeps. I don't need that. And and I say, that works, that doesn't work, I don't buy that, I do buy that, wow, that's good, elaborate on that. And it's it's big stuff. So the the script's edited and, and worked on before it comes to me, and then I do that. And then, then we go into a lengthy prep. We have the longest prep, I think, of any show on the planet, where we cast in a room, we meet everybody, who we we're considering we talk it through and Chris is there which is really unusual he comes to the castings and we've we've set that as a kind of standard for the show and in through the hearing the actors read it 
we do actually develop it even more. So that that process becomes organic uh, towards the shoot. Chris doesn't change much, but he'll say, oh, no, that has to be kind of, oh, no, that's not what I meant. When you hear it in audition, then you, you, can, you can change it slightly. And yeah, that's how it sort of works. It's a, it's, it's a deeply organic symbiotic process, which I've never had with a writer. I value and prize it beyond almost what I can express. It's it's extraordinary because I don't write. I'm a visual person. I do I do visual things. When I'm not working on a film, I take photographs and you know that's my thing. And I love acting. I've specialized in learning how to develop performance with actors. And that's my thing. So when when I've got a writer who's so dare I say it, OCD about getting the script right. It's brilliant for me. I can enter into that process without having to do anything. He's very happy to change, mould. You know, he's brilliant at that. So it's been a, a, a joy, you know, an absolute joy. I felt very creative for now 30 hours of drama. I haven't felt, well, oh, I've got to do this or I'm bored ever. Do you know what I mean? It's, that's just extraordinary. So it, it has been a thing. And the response, we weren't expecting the response we got. I, I think on the first season, we thought, oh, this is really good, you know, and, and it's novel and it, the format's really interesting. I haven't seen that before where you're empathetic with the suspects as much as you are with the police. I haven't seen that. And I like the idea of, you know, each one of the suspects gets 40 minutes of screen time. So it's a film, you know, you're making a film about this character and you can really mine it and you can get really good actors to do it because they they sense that there's an opportunity to do something. So I've enjoyed that. And we, you know, we, but we didn't think it would be a huge hit. Nicola Walker, when we started, it wasn't a massive star. I mean, she was very well known and I loved her, you know, but we just didn't know. When we got the sort of first batch of five-star reviews, we all just went, you what? <laughs> like, uh, how did that happen? And, and then we gradually sort of got a bit blase about it. <laughs> when they were four star, you know, we were kind of like, oh, well, it's not five star. So it was a surprise. But I think I think everybody involved in the project on season one just loved it. That was the atmosphere on set. Was This is good, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, this is good. Oh, yeah. Look, well, let's do our best, shall we? That was sort of how it um, evolved. And we had a couple of actors in year one, Tom Courtney and Francis Tumulty, who were, you know, heroes of mine. And I thought, well, you know, if I can get people like that, then this is a good show. That was very exciting. At the beginning of Unforgotten, I really wanted to develop a new style of acting for television. I mean, I'd just come off Ripper Street. I did loads of Ripper Street, which I also adored. You know, I did 12 hours of Ripper Street altogether. And I'd just come off season three, which was the um, train crash one, you know, the, when it, the, the show moved to Amazon. And, it, and I loved all that. It was very gothic and it was, diff- you know, Richard Warlow, brilliant writer again. The way he had the dialogue, faux Victorian gothic was just fantastic. But I really, I'd had enough of that. And mm. I, I wanted to find something where I could, my, I, I'd just seen a couple of naturalistic films at the time where I thought, actually, do you know what? As I get older, I think I should get into naturalism and see how that works. And uh, 
this offered that opportunity to rein in the acting to something approaching truth. And I think that's that's the sort of thing we've that's what we've mined in the acting style in Unforgotten as well. So yeah, it's been a fantastic journey, great journey of learning. Yeah. Can I ask you about the casting? Because the casting, I think, is is phenomenal in this. The special guests you get each season are always brilliant. What do you look for when you're casting them? Is it it the right fit for the role? Or is there a kind of, again, using the word DNA, for for your unforgotten special guests? We we absolutely look for the right person for the character and um, reject some fabulous (laughs) names who are put forward by the channel and the execs because they don't work, because they don't fit. Yeah. The first season was very difficult because we knew we needed some names and we got Tom Courtney first. He was the first one to go into place. And I just thought that was an outrageous thing to ask Tom Courtney to do that. (laughs) And he he came to uh, lunch with Chris and I and and just said, oh, no, I'd love to do it, you know, and we just <laughs> we were sort of blown away. And um, he had some great ideas and so on. And so that was fixed. And then we thought, OK, so Tom Corney, but Tom Corney really doesn't mean anything to an ITV TV audience. We need something, another building block. And I'd work with uh, Trevor Eve on a thriller called Kidnap and Ransom. And I liked him very much. I liked Trevor a lot. And I, I suggested Trevor for the millionaire character, the Lord. And everyone went, oh, Trevor, oh, is he right? Is he right? I said, yeah, he could do it. And so he came to lunch. And this is what we do. We sort of, we lunch people in a very posh <laughs> hotel in Holborn. He came to lunch and, and he said to me, knowing me, because he knew me very well, we'd, we'd worked together a lot. And he said, so what do you want me to do? And I said, Alan Sugar. And he went, got it. I'll do that. You know, and so that fell into place. So he did Lord Alan Sugar, and it was brilliant, actually. And who else was there? Like, yeah, uh, Ruth Sheen. Nobody knew who she was, but we all loved her and thought, that's Ruth Sheen. So I've, I had a bit of an interesting Unforgotten journey. I watched season one and then season four or five. Oh, really? Okay. I, I had very big ambitions of watching all of them in about two weeks, Andy, yeah. but I didn't quite manage it. No, you can't. <laughs> it's a lot of drama now. It's weird looking back over it and season one is for me is eight years ago and and several other jobs and 30 hours of of unforgotten you know so it's it's very hard to remember I genuinely don't look at my work as soon as I deliver the the cut I don't sit and watch it ever nothing Mm -hmm. I've ever made have I have I watched again when I watched season one even though you say it's eight years old I watched it about a month or so ago. It felt yeah. still very fresh, Good. very exciting, yeah. um, having never watched any Unforgotten. You were talking about, I mean, Adam and I have spoken about it, about the uniqueness of the show yeah. and the kind of for the formula and the, the case being like a real star and the fact that yeah. they're cases and that's quite unusual. And, you know, feeling empathy for the suspects. There's so much in there that felt still feels fresh, even yeah. eight years yeah. on from season one. I guess we were wondering, what's the most important thing that you bear in mind when you're when you're approaching a series? Oh, like, that's really the- easy. I I don't judge. That's really easy as a director. I absolutely don't judge any of the characters in terms of you know thinking, oh, they're horrid, or mm-hmm. I simply try to get them to be as realistic as I possibly can 
there's no room for playing the villain or everything they do has to be rooted in an absolute truth. You have to mine the truth of the scene. And that's often difficult. You know, an actor will come quite often to a scene with a preconception because they've read the whole script. And I I used to rehearse when I was younger because you're worried that the actors will get it wrong. But now I refuse to rehearse. I won't do rehearsal. I have read-through. I talk to the actors as much as they like on the telephone, but I will not run a scene with an actor before hitting the set. And I won't I won't let them interact with anybody else before hitting the set. So when you, you hit the set, I tend to um, think that you get an incredible veracity of the situation in the first couple of takes. So I don't do many takes. I quite often go straight for the pertinent close-up first. Uh, minimal rehearsal. I just say, you're going to stand there, you're going to stand there, you say the lines, right? Now let's turn over. And because you've prepped it with the actors, you know, you've had those conversations offset in the makeup truck, you know, wherever, in costume, I'm always there. They know what they're doing. And you get, you, you get this sort of amazing um, spontaneity. We haven't ever rehearsed a scene of Unforgotten before hitting the set. It's very interesting because I've developed all sorts of ruses and tricks to rehearse, in inverted commas, before they get there, which includes, you know, even priming the makeup people to say certain things. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? That sort of stuff. You know, it's like real tricks, tricks. So that when they get to the set, they don't feel like they they don't know what they're going to do. It's been laid in, but it hasn't been laid in in a fixed rehearsal theatrical sort of way. So I'm I'm trying to get that truth is the the absolute thing that we're always looking for. And you know, nine nine times out of ten we get it. And when I when I don't get it, I can usually edit round it. But it's generally, I mean, actors love that. They love the spontaneity. They love. They, lo- they, they love having the responsibility taken away from them. It's very interesting that, you know, if you, if you rehearse in a rehearsal room, they go away and they go, oh, was I any good? And they're doing that for sort of three weeks before they get to the actual scene. So by the time they get to the actual scene, they've almost had a nervous breakdown <laughs> about how they're going to do it. And was that right in the rehearsal room? And did I do... Whereas if you just know your lines and, and you, you kind of osmotically taken in the character and the situation and the people you're going to be working with. And I don't think you can do it on every show, but on this show, you definitely can. You know, the scenes present themselves as little moments of truth and you just have to capture that. And that's great. You know, there, there's some some of those scenes in the interview room, like the, the one with Alex Jennings, oh, well, with Tom Courtney, he had he had 11 pages on a on an interview room scene and I didn't rehearse that at all I said to him on the day you know do you want to do all these scenes all together oh yeah no I'll do it all and I said okay well should we do the close-up first and he said well that's a good idea because I might forget it after that that technique of going for the close-up first came from Tom and uh, and I realized you know that actually that first take that first big close-up of a, of a very long piece of text even if they get bits wrong you know you can you can cut around that it's so fresh and that's what you want to preserve and I think that's what you don't see in a lot of other shows they're very stilted acting still in in quite a lot of British television not everything I, there's things that I really admire from the point of view of acting 
but I think in terms of naturalistic acting, we've taken it to a new level. It's mm. uh, it's fascinating. It's like you know cinema drama acting rather than television acting. It's it's sometimes even a bit mumblecore, but <laughs> <laughs> we have very good sound men. There is a real uh, authenticity to it, I think. You know, yeah, uh, that's what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is yeah. which is brilliant. Obviously, you mentioned Nicola Walker, but losing Cassie was a big thing for the fans. And yeah. what I've heard, some of the cast as well. How different was it for you directing this, the show this year without her? Well, it was it was weird because I was a fan, and I also became a very close personal friend of Nicola. And when she um, said she wanted to leave I completely understood it was she genuinely felt she'd taken the character as far as she possibly could and wanted to find a new way and she's also she's completely in love with the theatre mm. and um, she wanted to do more theatre and indeed she went straight to the National and did more theatre and I thought yeah okay but what do we do I mean I wept more than any fan while I was editing the last episode of season four Every time, every single time, and I have to see it about a hundred times, you know, which is essentially why I never watch my old work, because why would you? I, I wept every time. I wept every time. And what was interesting was you're weeping about the character. It wasn't because Nicola Walker's dead, because she's not. You're weeping about a, a, a fictional character passing away. And you just sort of went, I mean, that, that taught me something about drama which is that, you know, the invention of these fictional characters is something deeply human that we all can uh, relate to. And the, I got death threats from friends and family, you know, because <laughs> they, they thought they thought I, it was like I'd, I'd committed homicide on a, on a family friend or member, you know. It was like, we'd killed her. Oh, how could you do that? You know, I'll never speak to her again. And it was all pretty genuine. Was, yeah. I was shocked by it. And and then we thought, how do we do it? And then Chris said, uh, you know, oh, I think I can do it. And then he literally, when the last episode of season four went out, ping on my email came episode one of season five. Uh, the only one he'd written. He'd only written one. And I read it. And I, I had a Henry Higgins moment. I just, I just went, oh, my God, he's done it. Because, <laughs> you know, just reading it, I knew that I could get someone to perform that and gain the sympathy of the audience whilst doing what the character had to do, which was make the audience not like her because mm. they've got to get over Nicola. That thing of with the husband being in scene one, shot one of the new character, you just went, whoa, yes, I've got it. I can do that, you know. And then I could take her on that journey where she could be rotten to everybody else because she had that excuse that the audience would forgive her for not being Nicola. It's genius. Do you know it what I mean? It was so clever. And so clever. I thought it was so yeah, clever. And, and that was literally on the day the the sixth episode of, of season four went out, Chris sent it. And I knew when I'd read it that we were going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It is so so clever, and you were talking yeah. about you know the the kind of grief that people felt about. Yeah. this. I think TV is is obviously very different because these people are in your living room. They come into your home. You're That's eating right. with them a week. They feel yeah. really part of your life, and 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 sometimes family. I I'm not remotely. I mean, there's been loads of TV characters that I've wept over. You know, well beyond the final episode at losing yeah. them. It's just such a clever move. 
to bring Sinead in in that way. Well, he's uh, a clever boy, Chris. He really is. <laughs> I relaxed and I just thought, well, if we find the right person, and then there's all the talk about should she look like Nicola? Should she look? Should she be you know completely physically different, whatever? And then we just thought, no, let's just find the actress who does that part best. And it was quite clearly Sinead. You know, she had this very um, funky energy, and uh, I thought I could really harness that and you know make it very different. The sort of slight zappiness of her, which is her. You know, it's her. And she was up for it, which was very important because I think she's she's very intelligent and she realised the boots were of a very large size. She was slightly scared of the challenge, but I, I she hit it well. And I think we, you know, we really bonded. It was I, I look forward to doing another one. Yeah, it's really, uh, if we get it. Yeah, is, is season six something that's in, in the pipeline or is it a, a who knows at the moment? We're the same as every other show. We wait for ITV to say, would you like to do another one? And then we go, yes, please. Great. They, they you, haven't done that yet. So, do you have episode one from Chris in your inbox? Uh, no, but I do <laughs> I do know the idea. Mm. Uh, but no, I haven't had episode one in the inbox yet. No, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. I think there might be a script being discussed at the moment, but I haven't, I don't want to see it until it's uh, yeah, sure. real. We're going to have to wrap up in a little bit. We're big fans of Matthew McFadden and, and Jerome Flynn oh, in, yeah. in, in Ripper Street. So <laughs> just wondered whether you had any stories about that experience. Oh, it was wonderful, Ripper Street. I mean, Matthew and I go way back to Spooks. I first worked with him on Spooks, the first season of Spooks, and Keeley as well, his wife. Uh, I didn't know Jerome, but it was extraordinary. I don't know. I, 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 I don't have any funny stories about Matthew and Jerome, but the whole thing was funny. We never stopped laughing. It, it was that kind of show, River Street. It was because it was pantomime in a funny way. You know, the, there was a lot of um, a lot of hilarity mm. on set, um, particularly with the body parts and the and the um, <laughs> naked people on slabs and the, <laughs> the gore and all that sort of stuff. Matthew's not very good with gore, but he didn't like all the um, the mortuary scenes. With Jerome didn't mind so much, but it, no, it was just it was a wonderful experience, absolutely wonderful experience. Matthew's one of the most efficient actors you'll ever come across. He's that's what I learned and loved about him. He's got his lines word perfect, no matter how how difficult they are. You can shoot, stop, go again. You know, he's just an incredible professional. I've, I love working with him. I hope I do again one day soon. We're very much looking forward to Succession coming out this week. Yeah, yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, that's a very good show. Another but, show that famously doesn't rehearse that much. No, they, but they they um, improvise a lot, don't they, the Americans? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't stand for that. <laughs> <laughs> Not when you've got yeah. such good writing. No, we don't do yeah. improvisation. Well, no, that's right, because it is actually all very well thought through in advance, yeah, so you don't want to improvise over the top of that. There's plenty of room for improvising in, you know, the action and stuff when there's no words. That's... You know, we've talked about Cracker, Ripper Street, Unforgotten yeah. to name just a few. And yeah. we'd love to just ask, you know, if you had one piece of advice to give a, sort of someone wanting to get into TV directing or writing, do you have that one piece of advice you might give them? I, I was given a piece of advice. 
I, I was uh, when I was young. I was a performer, and I wanted to direct, and I wanted to make film or television. And I was working with um, Derek Jarman. He'd seen a theatre show that I'd done, and um, he wanted to make a film of it, but that never happened because sadly he passed away. He, I said, so what do I do? I want to, I want to make film, and he, he just looked at me and he said, just do it, and that's it. You have to pick up a camera, get some actors in a room. And that's what I did. I started making little films of my own, like he did with Super 8 and, and uh, video and whatever I could lay my hands on. I knew loads of actors, so I could do I could get them in a room and work it out. And then I did um, what I, I knew lots of people doing theatre shows. So I offered my services as a, as a, to record stage shows. And I just got a little Sony Hi8 camera. And I said to the people putting shows on, you've got to take three days out of your run where the actors come in during the day and I'll get on the stage with them and I'll shoot the show and then I'll go away and edit it and you'll have a, a sort of filmic record. And people loved that. I did hundreds of them <laughs> turned into That's my job for yeah. a while. I That's mean, they've great. all sort of disappeared without trace, of course, because they're in the archives of theatre companies. But that taught me how to, you know, what, what do I need in close-up? What do I need in a two-shot? What do I need... You know, how do I tell this bit? Uh, this is a good bit of acting. Where should I be? And that that was that was my intro, really, into into staging film and television. Then I I moved on from there. Really, it's it was I was very lucky. You need a lot of luck, but really, if you just do it and you make something that people can look at, then you've done it. You've made a film. You know, or you've made a show, or you've made a painting. You know, that's it. So that's the advice, you know, don't wait for a job, just do it. That That's straight from Derek Jarman, yeah. He just said, well, just do it, you know. He looked at me as though I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> he just did it, yeah. He was a painter, you know, uh, and set designer and just thought, oh, I'm going to make films now. And did it himself. All right, Andy, this has been so brilliant. Thank you so Good. much. I'm very, I was very, very pleased to talk to you. Good stuff. Yeah. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for taking Shall the Shall I sign off now? I'll, <laughs> I'll hit that little red button and go and look after my children. Great stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Okay. All the best. Bye. It was so brilliant listening to Andy talking about all that stuff. Yeah. Just hear, you know, he's been involved in some of the best TV crime dramas we've had. Cracker. Amazing. And yeah, just working with brilliant people and the way that he spoke about what he focuses on in Unforgotten, which is, what does he say, uh, truth and no judgment, was just, it really comes across when you're watching it. Yeah, definitely. Well, we promised our listeners we'd, we'd reveal what Andy said in his initial email to us. So here goes with this. Uh, he said, just one thing, Tony wasn't fleeing. He was off to Zurich to end his life by assisted suicide, the ultimate cowardly escape. I'm kind of annoyed that we didn't join those dots because we talked about the whole Zurich thing. Then he goes on to say, and Carol, how could we not love Carol? A decent guy whose whole existence was wrecked by association with the chaos of Precious's life. He was there to illustrate the spread of the damage to otherwise innocent lives. His line, how do any of us know why we do bad things, was one of my favourites. Great performance from Max Reinhardt, who captured the moral confusion of an ordinary man with dark obsessions caught in an impossible web. He had to come back to face it, which was brave, 
or run for his whole life from his shame. Notwithstanding, thanks to you both for your great observations. <laughs> I love that, and we didn't we didn't really praise Max, who he deserved uh, definitely deserved praise for his his performance as Carol. I I think I was a bit grumpy about Carol because I predicted him to be the killer, and he wasn't. But I thought it was interesting that he talked about sort of bravery and, and cowardice in those two things with Tony and Carol, and how actually that was quite a big theme of Unforgotten. And yeah, how they can sometimes coexist within the same person at different moments in in their lives as well. Um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Huge thank you again to Andy for chatting with us. It was such a pleasure and a privilege. And we hope you enjoyed this episode and do listen to our Unforgotten episodes um, if you haven't already. And if you want to let us know what you thought, you can do as Andy did by emailing tvdnapod at gmail.com uh, or engaging with us on the socials, tvdnapod on all good platforms. You can also petition ITV for season six. We await that news with bated breath. Thanks for listening. Bye.